has never stopped me before. So, um, is there? If somebody was to ask you, and heaven congregation, please forgive me for this. Remember meatloaf? I like the meatloaf, the singer. Okay, we won't get into the specifics of who meatloaf was, or but he had a song in the nineties. I would do anything for love. And the, the line after that was, but I won't do that. Okay? Again, we won't get into what that was. You don't need to know. Okay? But, but all since I've been prepared for this message, I've been thinking about what is the one thing that you won't do? Okay? I've actually got like 12, but a couple is I will not eat peas. Do not ask me. Do not expect me. To eat peas. They are from the very pits of the deepest, darkest part of hell. Okay? Peas are awful. I can't stand to smell them, see them, and don't even think about me tasting them. Okay? Don't! Don't! And kids, if, if your parents say to eat your peas, you eat your peas. But don't ask me to do it. That's one thing I will not do. There's that, like, let me tell you one more. Okay? I don't deal with loose teeth. I, don't, I can't. I can't. I can't do it. I don't know why. There's just some mental thing, physical thing in me. Hannah's first loose tooth that we first dealt with. I told Amanda, I'm like, I don't. I, I can't. I just can't. She said, Okay, no problem. I'll handle it. Well, the second loose tooth, I'm like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to step up. I'm going to be a man. I'm going to fulfill my role. When I approached her and I touched her, I was like, whoop. <laughs> and I'll do it and I'm like, I can't. <laughs> I, can't. I, can't. I don't know what it is. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I, I, teeth don't bother me. Loose teeth bother me. And Asa knows that. Yes, I hate that. <laughs> I won't do that. No, I won't do that. What are... A thing. What is a thing? What are some things that you will not do? Well, we're starting into Jonah today. And actually, we won't get into Jonah per se. We're going to go do an introduction and background to Jonah. And what I see as we prepare to get a full understanding, and if you're not familiar with the story of Jonah, let me just say this. God is going to send his prophet. Now, now remember that. Jonah is God's prophet. And he's going to send him somewhere to the city of Nineveh, which we'll read in a second. And if you're Jonah, you've got to be thinking, God, I would do anything for you. But I wouldn't do that. And hopefully I'm going to help you understand why. Jonah's not just grumpy. Jonah doesn't just not like traveling northeast. Okay, There's reasons. Hopefully we'll understand that more when we leave here today. So we, we, I know we didn't, but it feels like we just ran through Ruth. I wish, not don't wish. I, I'm glad we did it the way we did it, and but it seemed really quick, and it's going to feel the same way with Jonah, I think, because we're going to kind of um, do the same basic structure. We're going to do our introductory message today with Jonah background kind of message, and then we'll do just what we did with Ruth, one chapter a week, giving us four messages in the actual book, uh, five total messages, just like Ruth. 
Uh, and we're going to use two different passages today for our public reading, both of which give us mentions of this guy whom the book is named for, one Jonah. Jonah's name means dove, and we'll see later that that don't really blame the story at all, just so you know. But if you would, please stand. We've got three, four verses, five verses to read for our public reading. And we stand because we believe these are the very words of God. And we don't stand every time we read a scripture because you'll be up and down the whole time and get a good leg work out, and that's not what you're here for. So. 2 Kings 14, verses 23-25, the very words of God. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from gath Heifer, And Jonah 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word, to receive your word. God, I thank you that you send your messengers to those whose evil has come up before you. And this morning, God, would you remind us afresh and anew of your heart for sinners. And would you save sinners today? And would you convict the saved of their sin so that we might draw near to you together? Let me ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sit down. Now, if you'll remember, and we're going back six weeks, I guess, um, I'd said that the introductory message for Ruth would be pretty important if we were really going to understand the book as a whole, and I would, I would echo that here. And I'll try to stop saying this, but like Ruth, um, this intro to Jonah is going to be awfully important to grasp the fullness of the book of Jonah. And, and just quickly, when I say Jonah, you think big fish or whale, okay? We'll get to that, okay? I, I hope to destroy that association throughout this book. I think, I think it's important that when we think Jonah, and coming from the background message today, and seeing who God is, I really, really, really hope that through today and the next four weeks, Lord willing, that when I say Jonah, you think God. That's, that's, that's my goal. Um, but today, in, in this important introduction, we're going to try to find Jonah's place historically, geographically. We're going to look at the type of literature that Jonah is. And then we want to see Jonah in the context of its place in God's plan. And again, that's exactly what we did with Ruth, what we're going to try to do with Jonah. So, first and foremost, today, I think it's important to make clear that this book of Jonah is not a tall tale. Told in such a way as to get a point across. 
Because some people would say, this is a good story, but it's not true. And what I'm here to tell you today is, it is true. It is historical fact. Jonah was, in fact, a real person. And the public reading that we did there from 2 Kings helps establish that. It talks about Joash, Judah, Jeroboam, Samaria. 41 years, uh, Jeroboam, Israel. He restored the border of Israel. So these are physical borders, which was spoken by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from a real place called Geth Hefer. And just so you can see where Geth Hefer is. So this is the northern part of Israel. You see the Sea of Galilee up here. That's where Jesus did so much of his ministry. And if you come diagonally down southwest, you see Gath Hefer. Okay? I, I kind of, people ask where I'm from, I say Helen. They're like, what? Helen. Imagine being Jonah. I'm from Gath Hefer. Gath Hefer. Okay, I know where that's at, Gath Hefer. You're one of those Gath Heferites. And he was. Jonah was a Gath Heferite. And all the dates, names, places, and events mentioned in those three verses in 2 Kings are real. They're true. They're actual history. And that includes a prophet named Jonah, the son of Amittai, who was from Gath Hefer. And if you go back to Jonah 1, we have mention of, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. This guy, who was a real person, who was born in a real body, and he lived in a place called Gath Heifer, and God ordained him, called him to be a prophet, and that actually happened. He had a daddy named Amittai. And this Jonah, mentioned in both places, fits perfectly in the timeline to be an actual person. You're like, you're belaboring this. Yes, I am. So a real Jonah from a real place in a real time has real things happen to him. You cannot pick and choose some of the things from the book of Jonah to be story and some to be fact. Some made up for illustrative purposes and some that were true. Let me be clear. The book of Jonah is not allegory. It's not fantasy. It's not an illustrative story. These four chapters that we'll look at over the next four weeks are true. They're factual history. All of it. And if you have any doubts about that, I know a guy named Jesus. And Don read it from Luke. I'm going to read it from Matthew this morning. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Notice he didn't say Jonah. He says the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, who were real people in a real place in real time, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus refers to Jonah as a person who was in the belly of a great fish. And then he says that Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection will be like that. 
Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection will be a real historical event that will be like the real historical event of Jonah being in the belly of the great fish. He also refers to the men of Nineveh who repented of Jonah's preaching and how they will rise up at the judgment and condemn Jesus' contemporaries. That will happen because it's true and real. And then Jesus also refers to Solomon, the queen of Sheba, and they are historical figures as well. They're not stories, just like Jonah. And again, I am belaboring this because I think it's of first importance as we move into this book. Amen. Why? Now give me a break. What are you so upset about? I'm not upset. Passionate. And I will not eat peas. <laughs> Why is this important as we move into this book? Because, listen to me, when you read the Bible and you seek to interpret the Bible, you have to interpret a book based on the type of literature that it is. I read, you read, and I interpret, and you interpret historical accounts differently than I do allegories or stories. Allegories and stories have some artistic boundaries that convey truth in ways that can feel or process differently in different people at different times, as long as the main point or purpose is fulfilled. But, listen to me, 21st century America. I don't get to refigure history based on my feelings. And we're going to read in this historical account that this real man Jonah, he really does get swallowed by a real great fish. And there are plenty of people who will read that, laugh, and dismiss the Bible as a bunch of Sunday school stories for little kids with no relevance in our quote-unquote modern times. Which could not be any further from the truth than it is. Listen, the God of the Bible is the only true God in the universe, and if Jonah teaches us nothing else, it will be that this real God, if this real God, wants a man to get swallowed up and vomited out on a beach somewhere by a great fish, guess what's going to happen? This book, this little four-chapter book, is one of the biggest God books in the Bible. And it shows God working directly in real time, interacting as God in real time to accomplish His will and purpose. And He continues to do that today. We usually see it as providence, much more than Jonah saw it as direct revelation. We don't see direct revelation today. Hear me say that as clear as I can. God does not speak to you and give you private revelation that's just for you, special to you, outside of the Bible. He does not do it. The sufficiency of Scripture is that God has spoken in these last days through His Son. And if people come up and say, God wanted me to tell you this. He spoke to me last night directly. And I heard it as clear as I'm hearing your voice right now. Look at him and say, what's the chapter and verse? And be careful with that even. Because it can be ripped from its context. But a real God is still working in history today, right? Yes, He is. And make no mistake, God is the main player in this book. I couldn't call God a character. I couldn't bring myself to do it. 
God is the main emphasis, the main central focus of this book. Not Jonah, not a great fish. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, quote, What is the book of Jonah about? Well, it's not simply about a great fish mentioned four times, or a great city, Nineveh, named nine times, or even a disobedient prophet mentioned 18 times. It's about God, exclamation point. God is mentioned 38 times in these four short chapters. And if you eliminated him from the book, the story wouldn't make sense, Wiersbe says. And he finishes with this. The book of Jonah is about, is about the will of God and how we respond to it. It's also about the love of God and how we share it with others. End of quote. I could stop right there and that'd be pretty good. But I'm not going to. So, with all that established, let's look at the historical setting of the book. And I'm sure you're like, yay, history, okay? We have to know these things. We have to know where these things fit or, or, or the Bible doesn't make sense to us. So we said that the first verse mentions Jonah, the son of Amittai, and then that second Kings passage mentioned Jonah, the son of Amittai, too. Well, let's look at that second Kings passage again and explore it some. Can you go back here? Second Kings 14, 23, 25. Now, Note the details here, because that's what we're going to be looking at. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, keep that in mind, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, keep that in mind, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, time out real quick. If you go back here, Jeroboam, the son of Joash... And then you've got Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Two different people. And we'll talk about that in a second, but just know that. So he did depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. That's how we would say it in West Virginia. So this passage here gives us the guardrails for the time of the book, along with the cultural setting, both of which will be crucial as we go through Jonah. This passage here in 2 Kings says that a guy named Jeroboam became king of Israel in the 15th year that Amaziah was king of Judah. So that sets us squarely in the time, in the, in the scriptural history, in the time of the divided kingdom. Now, some of you are familiar with that thought, the divided kingdom. Some of you may not be, so let me explain it for you as quickly as I can. Ruth had taken place in the time of the judges. Ruth took place in the time of the judges. Now, the judges were in a time period after the Israelites had returned to the promised land after the exodus from Egypt, most of you know about the exodus from Egypt, Moses, Red Sea, desert, 40 years, all that kind of stuff. Okay? They've been enslaved for hundreds of years in Egypt. Upon their return to the promised land, they fought battles of conquest under Joshua to reclaim the land, the book of Joshua, to reclaim the land from those who had been living there in that time period that they were gone, which again was hundreds of years. And God was their king and their lawgiver at that time, but they forgot that within a couple of generations after occupying the land. So the period of the judges happened. 
characterized by the people doing what was right in their own eyes. And y'all heard me say that several times through Ruth. Well, the last judge was Samuel. And if you don't know the story, it's worth reading 1 Samuel. And during Samuel's days as the last judge, the people of Israel asked for a king to rule over them. Okay? God was their king, but they asked for a physical king so that they might be like the rest of the nations. Oh, went too far. I don't think I have this one up here. 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. That's not very nice. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Also not very nice, though it's true. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And this ends up happening. And all the land of Israel, and in Scripture you might see the phrase, from Dan to Beersheba. Okay, Dan was the northernmost, Beersheba was, yeah, and Beersheba was the southernmost. All of Israel was one king under one, uh, one kingdom under one king. Okay? First king's name was Saul. So Saul reigned for a while. He was Israel's first king. When Saul died, his son Ishbosheth took over for him, but was overwhelmed. He, he didn't have all of Israel. He had most of them except for this little tiny place ruled by a guy named David. And eventually Ishbosheth was overwhelmed by David, and David became the second king of all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. David is succeeded by his son Solomon, who you might know, under whom, Solomon, the nation of Israel reached its peak in terms of land size and wealth. But Solomon was led to, to stray from God because he married many foreign women. When I say many, I mean many. 700 wives, 300 concubines. They say he was wise. We need to do. But but he married foreign women, which is what he was to do. And these foreign women led him to worship foreign gods, and he even built idols to their gods. So God promised to do something as a result of Solomon's disobedience and turning away. Now God had made a covenant with David, saying. A member of your family will sit on the throne of Israel perpetually. And we've seen through Matthew specifically that only that fulfillment is in Jesus, who was a son of David. But God is not happy with Solomon, and he promises to do something as a, as a, as a result of Solomon's disobedience and turning away. So God started raising up nations to attack Israel okay, from outside, but he also made moves inside the kingdom to tear it down and to tear it apart. I'm going to read 1 Kings 11. This is a little bit lengthy, but stay with me. 26 through 40, because this talks about what God does to start the process of tearing the kingdom away from Solomon. Now, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zerubah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. So this is one of Solomon's servants who's kind of making some moves. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah... The Shilonite found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. 
Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the son of the god of Moab, we heard him back in Ruth, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, talking about Solomon, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I've chosen to put my name. And I will take you, Jeroboam, the prophet says, God says, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Okay, so let me, let me sum this up for you. So what we have here is a guy named Jeroboam. Again, not the same Jeroboam that was in 2 Kings. We saw that earlier. We'll get back to him in a few minutes. And this guy Jeroboam was a servant of King Solomon. He was over all the forced labor, and a prophet by the name of Ahijah came up to him one day on the road and said that God was going to give to him, to Jeroboam, ten of the twelve tribes of Israel to rule over, while giving Solomon's son one tribe to rule over. Anybody got, got math issues here? How many tribes is there? Twelve. Jeroboam's getting ten, Solomon's getting one. <laughs> You're like, that's that lost tribe of Israel. No, 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 it's not. <laughs> they didn't count the Levites as a tribe because the Levites lived amongst everybody, which was the 12th tribe. No, no math problems in the Bible, okay? Not, not a problem. Um, so, um, I just said, you're going to get 10 tribes. Solomon's son is going to get one tribe. And when Solomon died, that's exactly what happened. So, again, remember, I'm explaining the divided kingdom. That's the point of all this. So, the nation of Israel was split in two. With the northern ten tribes calling themselves Israel. Let me pull that up. I've got a, a handy dandy map. Okay? So the northern ten tribes were Israel. And the southern kingdom became the kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem was in Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel set up Samaria as its capital. The Samaritans. Okay? So there's two, this one nation has become two nations now. Hence the divided kingdom. And when Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, gets the southern kingdom of Judah, one tribe, more than one and a half. We won't get into all that math either. And then Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, becomes king of the bigger nation, which is ten tribes. Okay? The divided kingdom, northern kingdom of Israel, ruled by Jeroboam, southern kingdom of Judah, one tribe, ruled by Rehoboam. Okay, and it would continue as such until each is taken over by separate foreign kingdoms. And let me jump to that real quick. Yes. Okay. 
to place your Old Testament specifically history, there are five foreign onslaughts that take place in the land of Israel over the period of hundreds of years. Okay? In 722 BC, Assyria, who you're going to hear a lot about today, takes over the northern kingdom of Israel that we just saw. They don't make it down in the south. That's a whole great story that we're not going to talk about today. So 722 BC, Assyria takes over the northern kingdom of Israel, and Israel becomes a part of Assyria. 586 BC, Babylon overtakes Assyria as the world-dominating empire, and Babylon takes the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah becomes part of Babylon, the people get sent to exile. Over a period of time, the Persians become the stronger empire. They overtake the Babylonians. They come and they take the land in 444 B.C. 323 B.C., Greece becomes the dominant power. They become the dominant power for them. They come and they take the land. And then 63 B.C., Rome swallows up Greece and Rome swallows up. Now you're like, I don't care about any of that. You should. Okay? Because it helps you place things historically, especially when you start talking about this divided kingdom stuff. Because it gets real confusing. And if you've got this frame, which this is a frame, to put this time period in, so this starts in 722 B.C., about the time that we're going to talk about with Jonah, and goes all the way through the end of the Old Testament, really into the New end of the Old Testament, into the New Testament, and you can say, oh, that's when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom. Aha. Okay? Just something to help you understand the scriptures a little better. Real historical things that took place in a real land in real time, and this is just... And again, I'm very thankful for a man who took the time to teach me this. It's important. Discipleship. A man in the church set me down and taught me this. Just how it should be, by the way. Not, not that I mean seminaries. I don't mean seminaries. So anyway, we've got this divided kingdom. Okay? And this divided kingdom would continue until 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom gets wiped out. But, and again, this is very important for our background info for Jonah. The two kingdoms of Israel and Judah would continue under good and bad kings, both, intermittently, with Israel in the north more often than not wandering away from God and his law. And if you saw back there in that first king's passage, the first king of Israel, Jeroboam I, was not a nice guy. He sinned, and he departed from the ways of the Lord, even though God said, if you'll obey me, I'll set up your house for him too. He doesn't. He leads him into idolatry, makes Samaria the capital. He sets up two golden calves there for people to come and worship, because we don't want them going down into Jerusalem, because that's a southern kingdom. So we'll give you somewhere to worship, and we'll give you something to worship. But he doesn't give them the God of Israel. He gives them two golden calves in the area of Samaria. And God's like, and if you, if you follow the northern kingdom kings, if they were bad kings, it says that they continued in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Like, this is boring. Stay with me. Okay? So throughout their history, God would send prophets to warn and to call his people back to him, both to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And there is a lifetime of study, literally, in searching out the timeline and interactions of kings and prophets in the Old Testament. Okay? Who was the king in the north? Who was the prophet to that king? Who was the king in the south? What prophets were after that? You could spend the rest of your life studying that. There's, there's enough there to do that. Okay? Well, at many times in the northern kingdom of Israel's timeline, God called them back to himself and warned that if they didn't obey, he would send a conquering army to punish them. 
And in their Old Testament history, things were brewing with the empire of Assyria. We mentioned here this. Assyria was primarily the area of the northern part of what is modern-day Iraq. And it became a huge empire, taking over lands almost at will. And they were brutal. Ruthlessly assailing men, women, children, killing, raping, tearing open pregnant women, taking captive, carrying away exiles with hooks in their noses and in other places. And they were really big. Let me see if I've got a map of this. Amos. 
Okay? And if you read their books, they're contemporaries of Jeroboam II and Jonah. Hosea is an account of a cheating wife to a faithful man because things are going so well, she just likes the things of the world. And Amos is actually from the southern kingdom of Judah, but he's sent to the northern kingdom of Israel at the time of Jeroboam II, referring um, to the wealth and opulence of the nation and decrying them and saying, come back to God, forget your riches. He decries their excesses, even referring to the women of Israel as demanding cows of Bashan. Ooh. Your big demanding cow sitting on their pillows telling their men what to do. That's what um, Amos said. I didn't say it. God said it. So you just see this picture of these well-fed, comfortable, rich, opulent Israelites. So, why am I saying all that? Because this is the time that Jonah takes place. Okay? Things were going well for the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, as shown by their opulent lifestyles. Viva la Israel is what they would have said if they spoke French, but they didn't. But didn't matter. Now, let me ask you a question. And some of y'all will get this reference, some of you won't. If the northern kingdom of Israel was rocky, who was their Drago? If they were 80s USA, who was their Russia? We've already talked about them. Starts with an A and rhymes with Amiria. Assyria was the big bad threat. The looming threat over this opulent, everything's going good lifestyle. Assyria loomed like a leering lion to the north and east of Israel. And Israelite sentiment toward them was basically hatred and fear. If you were in the northern kingdom of Israel, you hated Assyria and you were scared to death of Assyria. Big, bad Assyria. Now, where do you think that God's going to send Jonah to? Nineveh, which just happens to be the capital city of Assyria. Let that sink in for a second. There is a warmongering killing machine of an empire that basically surrounds the little landmass known as Israel, and they will conquer Israel in 722 BC, just some 50 plus years from Jonah's day. And God is sending his prophet there to preach a message of repentance and to call and draw these people, these hateful killing machine people, to call them near to himself. Now, Jonah is going to be shown as an impetuous, pouty, and selfish prophet. And we'll let that unfold as it happens. But for now, in an introduction to this book, we have to see Jonah's perspective here and understand it clearly. God is sending Jonah into the belly of the beast. Not, not the fish, that's the whole different one I'm talking about. And God is commanding Jonah, listen to me. To plead with these people who make a mockery of Israel and her God, plead with them to worship Israel's God. Jonah must have been scared. He must have been mad. He must have been shocked. Basically, incredulous. What? 
Now imagine, Jeremy, you're a prophet of the Lord. If you saw the fidget tales version of the prophet of the Lord, let's say the Lord. A message from the Lord. And so he's received messages and he's, a, he's known as a prophet. Well, then he gets the message from God, go to Nineveh. And Jonah rewinds the answering machine. What? Nineveh. Nineveh? What? You want me to go where? Steve, you spent time in Iraq. Lovely place. What if God said, Steve, go to Iraq and preach me to them? I don't really like those people too much. Jonah would have hated the Assyrians. And God says, go there. He was, had to be incredulous, as I would have been, as you probably would have been if you had been Jonah. Now let me ask you a question. What if God is calling us? We'll get there. Which brings us to the place of all this in the plan of God. What was God doing at this time? This time in history. Well, we know that he was dealing with his people split into two kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, with both of them bouncing up and down, back and forth, like a yo-yo and a blender, on and around his will and his law. Sometimes on, sometimes off. Sometimes we love you. Sometimes we ignore you. Sometimes we're listening. Sometimes we're worshiping this stone idol up on a high place on a hill somewhere. Alternately and sometimes concurrently spinning in his face and worshiping him. So God's dealing with his people there in Palestine in these two kingdoms. That's something he's doing at that time. He's sending his prophets to these people to remind them of him and his ways. And, not but, and... God's eyes are constantly, in this time period, roaming about the whole globe to find his people and to call them to himself. God's plan is for the world. From eternity past, in Eden, at the saving ark. At the covenant ceremony with Abraham. During the exodus. During the conquest of the promised land. During the time of the judges. During the united kingdom and the divided kingdom. And into our days and into eternity future. In him, in the eternal God. And through him and his plans. Listen to me. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Every tribe, nation, and tongue will proclaim the saving grace of the sovereign God of the universe. So, here in prime Israeli time, God sends one of his own men, one of his prophets, to call a pagan city, the very capital of the most oppressive regime the world had ever known up to that point. He commands him to move these monsters to repentance and a repentance fitting the king of the universe. Jonah, go to Nineveh. I will employ you there. And Jonah says, 
the Father, the generator, the source of all things, created the heavens and the earth. Why? For his purposes. For his purposes. And history is the unfolding of the story of the purposes of God. To the praise of his glorious grace. Now let me throw a little salt in this one, alright? Guess what your life is about? And then you. Your life is a part of history. And history is the story of God. Colossians 1, 15 and 20. I've quoted it already. Speaking of Jesus, who was God in the flesh, the Son of God, the second member of the Godhead, one God, three persons. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean he was born first. It means he was the fountainhead, the source of all life. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, you, me, us, all of us, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Probably going to Colossians after we finish with Jonah, because I want to explore this. Let me sum it up for you. It is all about Jesus. History. You, me, us, West Virginia, Vietnam, Iraq, Syria. Fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the stars in the sky. All of them. All of them we might live that way. Second application that went after purposes. Pawns. This is my favorite All the nations. Listen to me. The nations are gods. They belong to God. And God utilizes them, the nations, for His purposes. Now listen, let me, let me paint a little, not just background with Assyria. So Jonah hates Assyria. Jonah's afraid of Assyria because there's this looming war machine that's to the north and to the east of them. And, and Jonah's going, you're sending me there? Why are you sending me there? Because I've got people there, God says. And I'm going to spoil the story. You know it. Jonah goes there and they repent. And in 722 B.C., God raises up these same Assyrians to go and wipe out his people in the northern kingdom of Israel. What do you think happens to Assyria? Where is Assyria today? They are not. Because God judged them for their evil. And they got swallowed up by Babylon and they got wiped off the face of the earth. Why? Because God said so. Go, go preach my message to them. I want to see them saved. All right, Assyria, go wipe out my people. All right, Babylon, go wipe out Assyria. Who did all that? 
probably like that. The nations are pawns that God is playing in this chess game with himself. That he will win and not lose. Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns that heart, the king's heart, wherever he will. God does that. Look at this. Ruby, Isaiah 41, oh no, Isaiah 40, 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. The nations, all of them, Paying attention to world events right now, you might should be a little bit afraid of China. You're telling me to be afraid of it? Million man foot army. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I ain't sending you to Nineveh though. As you are going, make disciples of all nations. How about Acts 1, 6 through 8? To the original disciples, Jesus says this, when they come together they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He says, then, not for you to know, time for seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now let me tell you something about that commission there. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where you are, where you live your everyday life. You're going to be my witnesses in the surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria. Consider that the places of your deepest prejudices. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. She said, go to the Samaritans. Israelites had no dealings with Ninevites. Go to Nineveh and to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. Now let me ask you this question. You, individually, search your heart. Are you willing to go to those that you hate? Are you willing to go to those that you fear? Are you willing to go to those who are the recipients of your deepest prejudices? Oh, man. I'd rather not thank you very much. Watch for fish. Let me just leave that one. What about this? That word witnesses there in Acts 1 8. You know what the Greek word is? Martus. It's where we get our word martyr. Those who will lay down their life for the sake of proclaiming the message that God has given them to proclaim. Maybe you'll go to where your deepest prejudices are assaulted. Maybe. Are you willing to go if it costs you your freedom, your comfort, or your very own life? Jonah could have very well died in Nineveh. He knew that, and he didn't want to go. How about you? Listen to me, church in America. The army is marching upon your freedoms right now. The army is marching on your comfort right now. Laws will be passed. Legislation will be adopted. That will take away your Christian freedoms, your Christian liberties, your Christian comfort that we have enjoyed in this country for almost 300 years. Are you going to whine? Are you going to protest to God? Or are you going to lay down your life, your comfort, your excuses, and preach the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ wholly, completely, and fearlessly? That's what God's calling you to. You. We are his prophets today. Will you lay down your life? Jesus said this to his original twelve and will be done. Behold, I am sending you out of sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, not if, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will 
When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel for this many hours. So we say, God, we want your purpose. God, we know that all the nations are but pawns of your plan. Send us out as your prophets to proclaim your word to the praise of your glorious <coughs> grace. And may we never back down, complain, whine, moan when you call us to sacrifice and go to the places we fear the most and hate the most. And we're going to see what that looks like in China. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is clear, that your way is perfect. Help us to line up with your way preach your clear, unadulterated, passionate word to see sinners saved and to see the righteous corrected and equipped to do your will for your pleasure and help us to see our place in history. And may we see you as the centerpiece of it all from eternity past to eternity future. And may we honor and glorify you with everything that we do. Help us through this book of Jonah to see you and know you better. stand and receive a benediction. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay in this city.